Turn with me over to the book of Philemon. We're going to study Philemon for the balance of May and uh, look at what relationships should look like, what authority should look like, how we need to endure with people, how we need to approach people with needs that we might have, how we care for people. Philemon is the smallest book in the New Testament. It's only one chapter. Um, but a lot of good information is given there. So it's my hope that you would study with me. Uh, we'll take anywhere from three to five verses at a time. So this week we're going to go through verses one and five, one through five, and next week it'll be something like six through ten. So go back, read it, study it, do some digging, go on the internet and find out where Philemon lived and, and who he was. It'll help you. Verses 1 through 5 of Philemon. Paul's writing, the Apostle Paul, and he says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers. Verse 5, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Lord, help us as we study. We're going to talk about three things today. Paul's greeting, what it means to have grace and peace delivered to you, administered to you, and then how grateful Paul was. Before we get into our points, I'm always just taken with how Paul introduces himself. Here we have the greatest apostle in history, a man who has started more churches than anybody else, intentionally put himself in harm's way for the benefit of the kingdom and people, sacrificed more than anybody else, a man who has credentials that would be longer than your arm in terms of bullet points not the least of which is he was taken up to the third heaven now by the way you can't go there by yourself you can't just decide I'm going to push the elevator and get there God has to invite you and bring you and then when he got there God showed him stuff I imagine it had a lot to do with the revelation about how the Gentiles were to be incorporated into the people of God, grafted in the root that was the covenant uh, to, of, of God to Israel. But then, Paul says in Corinthians chapter 12, I think it's 1 Corinthians 12, or 2 Corinthians 12, he says, uh, there's stuff I saw up there I was not allowed to speak about. God told me, don't, don't say. Now, you, you say, why in the world would God show him stuff that he couldn't talk about? Well, the same reason you share secrets with your friends and, and, and tell them, don't tell anybody. It's one of those, I like you. I trust you. Come here. Let, let me show you something. Now, you can't, you can't share this. This is just for you and me. He had that kind of relationship. Now, I've seen stuff. I've had God come to me in special ways. I've, had, I've seen angels. I've seen stuff. But I ain't never been invited to there. Anything God has told me, I've told you. 
There's nothing he hadn't told me I couldn't tell you. Paul had a relationship like that. But what does he put on his business card? Paul, prisoner. Prisoner. That's how he introduces himself. Oh, sometimes he puts bond slave. Now, every once in a while, he'll refer to himself as apostle, but not to show his stripes, simply to make sure that people understand he's got that function and can help them because he is one. It's always servant-oriented. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and, and as he's writing this letter to Philemon, now Philemon is, a, is, we believe, an elder in the church in Colossae. So he may have helped to start it. We know that Paul never went to Colossae, at least at the time of the writing of the letter to the church at Colossae or during this, this moment. But we do know that Philemon had some role there. And, and as Paul is writing this letter, he's writing it from prison, real prison. Rome has taken him captive, prison in which he would be for two years. He's under house arrest. He's not in a literal prison. Being under house arrest is a whole lot like being under house arrest now. You could probably have some degree of freedom. You may be able to go to the market, but that under Roman guard. But he's writing from captivity. And yet he calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus, not a prisoner of Rome. Paul realized, I've been bound by the will of God ever since I got right with him. Where I find myself circumstantially on any given day does not define me. Amen. I'm defined by the, the commitment I made to my God. I am bordered and parametered by that. I'm a prisoner of Christ. And if he chooses to let my service to him be best fulfilled in prison for Rome, wonderful. I ain't going to be mad about that. Obviously, there are some people in there that I could not reach if I was on the outside. That's the way you need to look at your circumstances. Why did God put me here? I don't like this. This is painful. This is uncomfortable. This doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like I'm being blessed. Well, maybe it's because you're looking at yourself as somebody who's defined by your circumstances, not by where God has placed you and who he wants you to reach. He has you there because he's concerned about the other people. Hmm. Let me give you an example how Paul was so, so unconcerned about his temporary captivity by Rome. A jail cell was almost Paul's second home. That man spent more time in jail. He had about 26 years of ministry, almost five of which were spent in jail. About 25% of his ministry was spent in jail, 20 to 25%. <laughs> so this was like a second. It wasn't foreign to him to be taken captive by somebody. There he was in Philippi, first place in Europe for the gospel to be preached. Macedonia region, round about Greece and, and a little lower than Turkey and all that. And he's preaching and things are going well. People getting saved. Lydia gets converted and she invites all her friends. They have a women's aglow meeting and things just really flow. <laughs> and all of a sudden, as Paul's preaching there, there's a servant girl who winds up behind him. And every time he's going from one place to another, the servant girl, who happens to be the, the slave of another man, says to him from the back, servant, Paul, of the Most High God. He's a servant, Paul is, of the Most High God. Paul is a servant of the Most High God. Now, when she says it the first time, Paul's thinking, true, but why? After day one, Paul's thinking, you know, maybe something 
Day two, she does it. Day three, he said, I've had enough. And it probably on day three went something like this. Paul, servant of the most high God. Hmm. I put the... Hmm. She's mocking him the entire time. Mocking him. And so he turns around, had enough of it and said, listen, you spirit motivating that little girl, come out of her. Spirit comes out. She's free, probably happiest day of her life. But she was serving her master as a, what we would look at today as a palm reader, as a tarot card person, as a mystic, somebody who tapped into the spiritually demonic realm, not the God realm. And so the master looked at her as a golden goose because she was making him money. He got hot, went to his union, to the guilds of the day, and said, this man came and has destroyed my business. Now, you have to remember, these were, these were European Greeks. They didn't have any idea about Christianity. There was no moral compass. So what this girl was doing was common. This was ordinary practice. People wanted to know what was going to happen tomorrow, whether they should be involved in a business deal. They went to her. And now his business is shot. He's hot. Goes to his guild, say, this man just destroyed our business. He's coming into the city to destroy our commerce. They go to the chambers of commerce. Chambers of commerce goes to the magistrates. The magistrates take Paul and Silas. Silas is his companion. And beat them and throw them into jail. Not just any jail. The jail on the inside of the jail. We call that the hole, the inner hole. The, the, the place down there where you, you, you just, you never want to be, no light gets in down there. You get, you get your dinner through a little sliver. They, every once in a while they open up a portal where my, whereby you might be able to breathe a little clean air. And then while they were in prison, they were shackled in jail. And Paul and Silas thought, boy, this is a good time to pray. Not the kind of prayer most of us would pray, which is, oh, Jesus, get me out of this. I don't know how. I'm just trying to help people. And I want to be jail. Oh, God. They were praying this kind of prayer. Oh, Lord, you did something great today. Let the revival continue. Oh, if we have to sacrifice our life, so be it for your benefit. Comfort is not important to us. So they were praying. And then that praying just erupted into praise. They started singing singing now there were other people in the jail in in prison and it says in the middle of the night that as they were praying and singing all the other prisoners heard this now they had heard stuff coming from the hole before (laughs) words they had heard before but never like this songs they have heard before drunken stupors but never like this what was this singing about god these people ought to be the most angry bitter folks they need to be cursing and hollering and screaming saying let me out of here but they're praising god who are these people and in the middle of the night an earthquake happens and the earthquake happened just in the prison (laughs) a little fault a little tiny fault right below the prison just happened while paul and silas were singing and all the prison doors the prison doesn't fall down The earthquake just shatters and shakes enough for the prison doors to open. Your praise, your praise, this doesn't have anything to do with my message, but your praise will help people. We have a consumer-oriented idea about church, and so we're always coming to get. But you need to come here on time, and you need to involve yourself in the praise, not for you. 
but for everybody else who needs to be free. Now, you'll get free in the process, but you have no idea how important your praise is for everybody else in this room and in your relational sphere. Paul and Silas' praise opened up everybody else's prison doors. The warden hears about it. He feels the earthquake. He goes to check on the prisoners because he realizes this. Prisoners escape, warden dies. That's the penalty in Rome. You let one prisoner escape, you die. He sees all the prison doors open. He takes out his sword, is about to fall on it because he realizes, I'm a dead man. And Paul yells from the inside of the prison. And I imagine he, even though they may not have seen one another eye to eye, the warden probably went, ah, and started hollering and screaming, not knowing what to do. And he was probably talking to himself and, and saying, I'm going to take my life. And, not, and Paul yells from the prison, hey, 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 wait, 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 wait. We're all here. And when he said all, he meant every prisoner. The prisoners were not only set free by Paul's praise, but they were so impacted that they didn't run. They all went down to the cell to have a Bible study. <laughs> and they all got saved. The warden says, who are you? Who are you? And what can I do to, to serve God like you serve him? How can I be saved? He gets born again right there. He takes Paul and Silas, after they finish the Bible study, back to his house. It's midnight. It's 1 a.m. by the time they probably get there. He takes them back to the house, wakes up everybody, mama, babies, slaves, everybody, wakes them up and says, listen, this man has something to share. He does a Bible study. The entire house gets saved and baptized that night. That night. Revival's breaking out. And see, Paul realizes, wherever I am is a place to minister. God's got me there to touch people I would not have been able to touch had I not been there. So God thought it was best to put me in prison. Now, that wasn't enough. It says the next day that the magistrates realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that they really blew it. You should not beat a Roman citizen nor incarcerate him without a trial. And they were scared to death because Paul could sue them and they could all be without a job. And so they came and they said, you know, we need to release you and uh, please go, please go. Paul said, no, 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 y'all got to come personally and talk to me about this because you really blew it. And so they came personally and let him go. But in between the Bible study at the warden's house and Paul's release, there's something very obvious that's often ignored. Paul was free, but he went back to prison. What would you do? You praise, pray, believe in God for release, and the Lord opens the prison door. God, you have set me free. Thank you, Jesus. I've been believing it. I'm no longer. Thank you. And who am I to, to go back into bondage? He who has been set free. God has released me from my imprisonment. No longer shall I'm going to submit to your will, oh my God. And you get stepping. But Paul realizes this. If I leave, that means I escape. And if I escape, the warden dies. I can't have that. I care about him too much. Warden, we need to go back to jail. Oh, but dude, you didn't do anything. I can't. No. Take us back to jail. 
so you can be restored to your family, please. Paul voluntarily reincarcerated himself for the benefit of others because his circumstances presently didn't matter that much as long as it benefited others. I can't tell you how important that is for the mature to bind yourself up to lock the key on your own circumstances because you care about somebody else. And when you lock the key on your own circumstances, you realize you've never been more free. Because being a prisoner of Christ allows you the greatest freedom you've ever had. He is a master, but never has there been one more benevolent and kind who died for you and only has your best interest in mind and wants to make sure you do nothing to to torpedo your own purpose. All he wants to do is make you everything you've you've always been intended to be. And you are the the, the best author of your own demise and left to yourself, you'll destroy your life. And so by becoming his prisoner, his bond slave, for the first time in your life, you experience what true freedom is. And so it doesn't matter what the world does. You can lock yourself up in that marriage that's painful because you care about other people. You can lock yourself up in your job. I I don't see... There were mm's and amens on the other parts, (laughs) but this part, there's not too many. I'm making it real. I have... when, When this church was going through a very difficult time, and this is nothing compared to what Paul did, but I I live what I'm telling you. When this church was going through a tough time, and there were 53 folks, Christopher Clark was one of them, and they were looking at me wondering whether I could be a good pastor because I'd never rubbed together a series in my life of sermons. Been in ministry 10 years but never done it. I'd never pastored a church before. And I was looking at them as to whether they could be a good church because they were mad and angry and the former leader had gone and all their friends were leaving and it was a tough time. You ever been through church issues? It's not fun. Disillusionment sets in and every Sunday you come together, you're looking at one another, not just with joy and seeing one another, but wondering, you going to be here next week? You going to be here next week? You don't know. Tough time. My phone was ringing off the hook. Pastor, you come here. We'll give you a lot of money. We'll set you up. We'll make sure you have a lot of support. You'll build a great church. Had a ministry that wanted to give me a radio program that would be syndicated. Books. Without mentioning the ministry, if I did, you'd all know it. And I would be the African-American version of that guy. And he was the biggest thing on radio in Christendom. He said, we want you. And they begged me to come. Twice as much money as this church was offering me, though that particular week I didn't know when I was going to be paid, so (laughs) twice (laughs) would be better than anything. I sat there and contemplated all of my options, and God said, stay. I said, happy to do so. I lock myself up in difficult circumstances. I choose to. I didn't know you'd be here 22 years later. I didn't know what God would do. All I knew is that he said, get in, get, in, get in the jail. Stay. Sometimes you need to lock yourself up and not go for the best opportunity because you care about people. More than you care about yourself, you care about the will of God. My point is, this is why Paul could say, I'm a prisoner of Christ. I do his will. And whatever it requires of me, I'm always yes, sir.
And then he says, and Timothy. Paul, the prisoner of Christ, and Timothy bring greetings to you. Not only am I impressed with Paul, but I'm, 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 I'm doubly impressed with all of his traveling companions. If I came to the staff, and we, you, you are really blessed with a good group of people that work for you. They're just fabulous. Pastor Dehan, David, Lou, just fabulous folk, great hearts, just competent. Wow. But if I came to them on Tuesday and said, oh, y'all, I, I just bought 29 tickets for our entire staff. And we're going to uh, Tiananmen Square in China. And we're all going to preach the gospel right in the same spot where that guy stood there in front of that tank. And um, we're going to see what God does. Though they may say yes, they would all be hard-pressed. Isn't that illegal there? And like jail is a possibility, right? In China. Jail in China. Jail here is not good, but jail in China has got to be doubly Pastor, have you prayed? Have you really sought the Lord on this? Timothy was with him in his imprisonment. He was willing to suffer with his leader. Silas actually did so in jail in Philippi. Beaten because Paul preached the gospel. Beaten because Paul told this little devil to come out of this little girl. I... There has to be something in Silas's mind thinking, couldn't we have preached the gospel without dealing with that? <laughs> Why did we have to go there? You knew that it was going to now make him mad. And all of a sudden, the commerce thing, and when you get people's money going funny, they get mad at you. And there was another way. What, couldn't we have birthed the church? And Silas said, do it. Set her free. Whatever it takes. Whatever it means for me, I'm with you. There's something about joining with other people who are your leaders or bringing progress to the gospel that is going to be unalterably uncomfortable but must be done. There's going to come a time when this church is called to go some places that are going to cost you, not just me. Make decisions that are going to cost you, not just me. There's a sociological cross coming to the church that we are going to have to bear. We'll find out who is Israel and who is not, who's a Christian and who is not, who's covenantal and who is not. Already you're beginning to see signs where intentional persecution is coming to the church for the purity of the gospel. In America, for the most part, systemically, there has never been that. Individually, yeah, folk may not like you. But systemically, there has always been a great tolerance for the message of truth. But now it's being contextualized in different places whereby if you say something about somebody's lifestyle that you don't like and call it immoral, you're a bigot. And now they're going to come after the church and their 501c3 because we won't hire people who have a certain lifestyle because they're now categorized as a race of folks. And we would be practicing discrimination if we do not. It's no longer a decision. It's that they were born that way. And if they're born that way, aren't they like black folk who were born that way? And you can't discriminate against black folk, can you? Well, my Bible calls it immorality. Immorality. We can't hire immoral people. It's coming that way. And when we don't, they'll take our 501c3. And that's just the beginning. We don't live in a Christian nation anymore. It's not Christian. It's far from it. 
and it's going the wrong way in a hurry. I'm already, I'm already beginning to brace myself to say, on that hill, I'll die. I'll die on that hill while loving people and dying for them. They are not my enemy. I might be theirs, but they are not mine. And I will die for them. I will love them till the day I die or they die. But I will die. But I will not agree with their lifestyle because I have to love my God. It's a sociological cross that's coming to the church. And we'll make some decisions that say, we need to go this way. And that might offend a whole bunch of folk. And that's not, that's just one very small area. It's going to get even worse. And at some point, I'm hoping I'm able to say, fill in the blank with your name, Brett and -and so-and-so from prison, from persecution, from difficulty, from adversity, right to you. Timothy's a man. He stood with Paul in his imprisonment. And then he writes to five different categories, but three other, two other people, three other people. Well, three people. Philemon, Apphia, and Archippus. Then he writes to the church as well. Three people in the church. To Philemon, he says he's a brother and a worker. To Apphia, he calls her a sister. To Archippus, he says fellow soldier. And then he writes to the church. Let's talk about brother and worker. First of all, brother, you get born that way. You don't, you don't earn that. You just come into the kingdom. You are a brother. Aphia, sister, come into the kingdom. You get born that way. It's a birthright. But of Philemon, he says he's also a worker. Not just a volunteer. He calls him a fellow worker. I love volunteers because volunteers are working more than people who aren't. I love volunteers. Never going to be mad at a volunteer. But generally speaking, I never look at a volunteer as a worker because they're about to leave in a minute. But a worker is somebody who sticks, stays, labors, goes through difficulty, and still wants to serve. I was talking with somebody, and this happens all the time, so I'm not talking about anybody in here. <laughs> talking with somebody one day who came and said, Pastor, I have served in this area for four and a half years, and, and I've, I've enjoyed it. And, but I'm, I'm just not feeling the joy like I used to feel. When I served, and I'm thinking I need to take a break. I said, I want you to know something. We would not be here without you. Thank you for your service. You are amazing. Four years, undying commitment. And it was to our children's ministry. And I said, you are just, I don't know how we'll ever be able to repay you. But can, can I offer you just one thought? Um, you, you really haven't, no one has begun to serve Jesus with purity until it's no fun to do so. Because all the while that you were doing it, when it felt good to you, there was something of you that was served. You enjoyed it too much. It brought fulfillment to you to serve others. And you felt great about it. Your ego was stroked. I said, it really doesn't become a sacrifice of worship until there's no fun. I said, so you're about to quit before it gets really good. That's the kind of workers we're looking for. Now, we'll take the volunteers. But that's the kind of workers we're looking for who are willing to press through all the difficulty and the pain and the inconvenience and find the grace of God in a way that's unusual and worship with your service. Afia, sister, 
Archippus, fellow soldier. Boy, you need to learn the art of war in spiritual life. What it means to fight for your calling, fight for your family, fight for your friends, fight for your church, fight for your community in a militant way that doesn't ever look at people as the enemy. Our staff fights for you. Fights for you. Our staff meetings are not administrative primarily in their orientation. They're discipleship oriented. First thing we have are testimonies. I want to hear what God is doing with the staff. And generally speaking, they are not testimonies about what God is doing in your sphere of influence for which you're employed. We pay you to do that. Whatever you say, that's what we're paying for. We expect it. I'm looking for the kind of testimonies that go beyond that to talk about your Christianity, not your employment. Because this is discipleship, not an evaluation of how you do your job. So I want testimonies of on-the-way stuff, on-the-way stuff, miracles like that happened in the Bible. Peter's going to the, to the place of prayer, goes through the gate beautiful at the temple. Guy's sitting there, lame, 39 years, raises him up. That wasn't planned. That was on the way. Give me some of your on-the-way miracles, some stuff that's happening in your neighborhood, that for which you're not paid. Help me understand how you're reaching out to your friends. So we expect this in our staff meeting. I was at the barbershop the other day getting my hair cut. And if you know anything about how they, they do uh, haircuts for, for men, ladies, they don't do it like you think. It's not like they start at one spot and end at another and they evenly cut it all the way through. With my kind of haircut, halfway through, I have hair on the bottom, of, bottom portion of my head and hair on top, but a, a, a line all the way around here. Now, that's important because a guy comes in as I'm in the middle of my haircut and he picks his, uh, pokes his head in the door, and he talks to my barber, Nate. He says, Nate, listen, I'm sorry, I, I, I missed my time. I, I need to be with you. My son just had a, a little situation. He cut off part of his finger, and um, <clears throat> I got to take him to the hospital. Nate said, oh, my goodness, not a problem, bro. That's okay. Well, how'd that happen? Well, daycare, d- finger slammed in the door. I said, oh, my. <clears throat> now, his son's out in the car. He stuck his head in the door just to tell Nate that. I'm sitting there listening, and I've got this this thing on me, stop the hair from getting all over me, and my hair looks a mess, and I thought, boy, I need to go out to the car and pray for this kid, but if I go out looking like that, I'm going to create a memory he doesn't want to see anymore, (laughs) never wants to to replay that, so I thought, no, that wouldn't be good, he's only two, I can't do that, okay, so I let him go, and I said, Nate, you know that guy, where was he, yeah, you got his phone number, call him, so he called him, I said, give me the phone, I said, sir, hi, my name is Brad, I'm, I'm sitting here in the chair, I heard what happened. And I happen to be a pastor of a church. I can, can, will you please permit me to pray for your boy for a miracle to restore his finger? He said, oh, thank you, sir. I said, I want you to put your hand on his hand, and I'm going to pray. We're going to believe God for a miracle. So I prayed. Call was no more than 25 seconds. Got on the phone. I'm not paid to do that. I'm paid to do this. But these are the kind of testimonies that we are expecting on a regular basis. This is how we practically are fighting for our community even when we are not on the job. We also have a time of prayer that lasts between 20 and 30 minutes. And aside from that, we send out uh, every week a list of 30 families in our church. And through the entire year, we pray through our entire church. We list you by name. Asking God for his favor and his mercy and his grace on your life. We fight for you. We pray for our community for revival and awakening, our church for God to come in power and not just make it ordinary and normal. We want there to be extraordinary times where impartation hits your soul like a freight train 
and it makes you go out and say, I must deal with what I have heard. That God comes to you, even outside of here. The church continues when we're done. We fight for stuff like this. This is what Archippus was, a soldier. Somebody who would fight with Paul. And lastly, he writes to the church. And so he's, he's including so many people, but specifically some categories that we need to take note of. Secondly, he says, grace and peace to you. These are not just spiritual hellos. These are impartations of fortune that Paul is trying to bring apostolically through government, the government of the church, to the people in, in Philemon's home by God Almighty. He wants to make sure that grace is something that they receive through his words. That the entire package of God's unmerited favor and everything that empowers us to live right and be right, that that is delivered to the church through his words. May grace be given to you. And then peace, if you're in difficult circumstances, let peace be yours. The peace that he, that he talks about in Philippi that passes all understanding. Guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Defend you against anxiety and fear. And with thanksgiving, allows you the privilege of standing in the midst of the storm as if it's 72 and sunny. Peace like that. We need to hear it from an apostolic perspective, not just a spiritual how you do it. And then lastly, he says, I'm grateful for a couple of things. Every time I go to God, I'm, I'm thankful for you because I've heard about your love for God and your love for people. And your faith toward God and your faith toward people. Now, when Paul speaks about things that he's heard about and is impressed with, you, you, have, to, you have to remember, this is Paul talking about being impressed. So you got to do a lot to impress him. This is a man who deeply understands what commitment should look like. He understands what love's supposed to appear like, how it's supposed to, to work. And he understands what it means to love people who are unlovable. Namely himself, that God reached out to him while he was persecuting the church and shed his love abroad in his heart. That foundational experience set the tone for his entire life that if God could reach me, who was an enemy of his purposes, not even knowing I was doing it, and yet continued to, 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 to outstretch his arm to bring me in, how could I not reach out to people that I don't like? Love that you have toward people and love toward God. People are unlovable. All of them. Some are just more tolerable. All of them are unlovable. That includes you. You do stuff that would justifiably make people say, I don't want to be here no more. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm through. I'm through. I don't want to be hurt anymore. Justifiable in that an offense has been committed. But even though it's justifiable, it's not right. Because there's a higher way. There's always a, a, a way to do things, and then there's a better way to do things. And God always wants us to choose the best. So we have to, we have to use some things that help us stay in relationships beyond just being served. And most relationships into which we enter, we are expecting to be served. And when we don't get served the way we like, we think it's time to end that relationship. But a relationship biblically is one where you enter expecting to serve. And whether you get served or not has no bearing on whether you serve. 
because you're, you're motivated by love, which doesn't have anything to do with feeling, has everything to do with commitment, and your goal is to make sure that the other party is benefited by your sacrifice on a daily basis and become something through you that they could not be had you not been there. And so your goal is to stay with them until they become what they should be. Are you listening to me? This is what love looks like, relationally. And loving God. Think about it. Most Christians are fair weather. They love God when they define Him as good. Now, that phrase, God's good, true. True as it can be, as long as you don't define what good is. If you're defining what good is, probably not true. Because he will put you in prison. He will put you in places, again, so you can reach folk that you would not have the opportunity otherwise to reach. He will cause things to happen to you that don't seem very good at all, but will work out for your good. This is our God who is good all the time. Because we're fair weather, we love him when he helps us. We love him when he makes us feel good. We love him when we get what we want. No, no, no. Love is a sacrifice of self for the benefit of the other. It is that which is given without looking for reciprocation. Unconditional love, agape. We are called to be people that love God regardless of whether we are benefited. Now, the beauty is we always get benefited. It's just not how we order it. And then he says, faith. I'm grateful for your faith toward God and your faith toward people. How does your faith work? Not just faith to get to heaven, but how does your faith work? What does it look like for you daily to employ faith? As I close, it's gardening season for me. And every year I plant my wife's garden. And I love my wife. She's deserving of it. She really, she's deserving of a bigger garden than I can plant. But, but when I go out to this garden, I try to get more out of it than just a reminder of how much I love her. I try to get some encouraging messages that stimulate me to say, this is good for you to do because you're helping yourself. <laughs> you're going to benefit the church too because something good is going to come out of this that you can talk about. So thus I am speaking about it right now. I'm out there and I can't use a rot- rotor tiller. So I've... I've the reason being, the only place to plant our garden is in the woods. Um, it's the only place in our, and so I had to clear an area to plant the garden. And, and 10 feet away from my garden, which is bordered about 16 by 20 or so. And that's bigger than you think when you start digging a shovel, shovel by shovel. That's telling you, tell you, that's two days worth of work. It's two days, starting at nine, ending at nine. That's two days worth of work. Home Depot, Lowe's. Two days worth of work. So 10 feet away from the garden are 70-foot trees. Every year I'm having to root out the roots. That's why I can't use a rototiller. Rototillers can work on small rocks and tough soil, but they don't work on roots because roots are too tough, and so the rototiller just stops. So I've got to take it shovel by shovel. And you would think that after five years of doing this thing that the ground would be all worked. You wouldn't have any roots. Well, these trees are still alive. And they realize, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced they either have eyes or they can smell or something because they're saying, that dude fertilizes that spot. He waters that spot. I'm going to send a root system all the way there. Every year, there is a brand new root, at least three or four of them, 
that are inch thick. They've been, they've been enjoying my labor. <laughs> enjoying my labor. And so I'm out there with a pickaxe and a shovel cutting, pulling up. My wife walked out, gave me a drink of water, a glass. And she, I said, you see that there? That wasn't here last year. I cleaned this out last year. That wasn't here. And so I had to dig all around her, get my hands down in the dirt, pull. Ooh, you strong. I said, well, yeah, baby. <laughs> yeah, baby. Now, now, that's what we're talking about. <laughs> pull it up. And I heard a snap underneath. She went, ooh, that was good. I said, yeah, wasn't it good, baby? Yeah. Huh. <laughs> As I was doing all this, I thought, you know, there's, there's a lot of hard work in cultivating the ground just to receive the seed so it can grow the way it's supposed to. You can have great seed, bad ground, it won't grow right. Ain't nothing wrong with the seed of God. The Word is beautiful, perfect. But the soil in which it's planted makes all the difference in the yield. And every day of your life, your faith needs to look like this. Get out your shovel. Get out your shovel. Get your work boots off. Put the thing in the ground and start turning over the soil. Get out the roots that will compete for the nutrients for the plants that you're trying to grow. Pull up all the rocks that will be impediments to its root system. And figure out a way to fertilize in such a way that everything that you do in that produces a yield that's a hundredfold, not just 30 and 60, a hundredfold, fertilized like that. And the fertilizer, you know what fertilizer is? We can't say it. I'm a preacher. <laughs> Before they had chemicals, it was that stuff. That's all the stuff you have to go through. That's all the stuff you go through. Now, you can either make it toxic for your future or fertilizer for your growth. You apply faith and say, Lord, that wasn't fun. That was flat painful. I didn't like that at all. But I'm telling you, God, I am not going to let this set me back. I'm going to find you in the midst of it. I'm going to develop greater character. I'm going to obey you more and love you more and love people more. I don't care how much I'm hurt. I don't care what they did to me. I'm not going to leave my people. I'm not going to leave my church. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to find you in the midst of it and grow through it. Circumstances of your life, fertilizer. Let's pray. God, I'm asking you for your help. Please help us, help us, help us, help us, help us. Help us to be the kind of people we ought to be. Please. Help us to be the kind of people to whom, to whom Paul wrote. Philemon, Archippus, Atphia, the church, amazed at their faith and their love. Is there anybody this afternoon that has yet to give their heart to Christ? Or maybe you've made a decision and you realize, wow, my life is nothing like what a Christian should be. If you fit in either of those categories, raise your hand high. I want to pray for you. Anybody at all?